0: Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Writer's Book Club. I'm Michelle Barakoff, and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing, craft and process behind one of their books. This month I had the absolute pleasure of chatting with the wonderful Kate Hall. I know many of you podcast aficionados will already know Kate from the First Time Podcast, which she co-hosts with the fabulous Catherine Collette. I've always loved Kate's interviewing style. She's so warm and genuinely engaged with the writers she talks to. And as a university tutor, she's incredibly insightful on writing process and craft. So I knew she'd be brilliant for this podcast, and she really was. We were, of course, discussing Kate's latest novel, The Hummingbird Effect, what a novel. It's one of those books where you read the last page and can't stop thinking about it. In fact, in preparing for the interview and looking for some of the snippets we could read to illustrate some of the craft aspects, I kept sinking back into the prose and the story. And I think I pretty much read the whole thing again by the time I'd finished And that definitely won't be the last time. This is a book I will go back to. It's engaging and challenging and heartbreaking and hopeful. And the writing, as you would expect, is first class. Kate was up for a massive deep dive on craft and did quite a few readings throughout the interview. And I know you're going to get so much out of this episode. Before I tell you about The Hummingbird Effect, I want to give you a couple of recommendations. Firstly, Kate is still on tour for this book and is heading to Lutruwita, Tasmania on October 19 in Hobart and October 20 in Launceston. Then she's back to Sydney and Melbourne with a few hosting gigs thrown in for good measure. She is a busy woman. You can find all the dates and details along with more about Kate and her novels at katemiltonhall.com. It's all just there on the homepage. The second thing I wanted to mention is if you head to the hummingbird effect page on the Simon and Schuster website you'll see a link there under featured content that will open up a magical portal it'll take you to a page full of resources to do with Kate's novel there's a video a playlist Kate's research so much information about the algorithm and the beautiful illustration and the process behind that Uh, you can read the first chapter there Uh, and there's also a list of all the books that inspired the novel which is particularly pertinent to our discussion. As you're about to hear Kate makes reference to an extraordinary range of books and artists and all sorts of references that inspired her and it's it's really spectacular so most of that is all in one place over at simonandschuster.com.au but Kate also mentioned a raft of other books and I have put links to all of those in the show notes so and you can find those right here in your podcast app or go over to writersbookclubpodcast.com and you'll see all the links there All right, let me tell you about The Hummingbird Effect. It is an epic, kaleidoscopic story of four women connected across time and place by an invisible thread and their determination to shape their own stories. One of the lucky few with a job during the Depression, Peggy's just starting out in life. She's a bagging girl at the Anglis Meatworks, a place buzzing with life as well as death, where the gun slaughterman Jack has caught her eye and she his. But how is her life connected to Hilda's almost a 100 years later, locked inside during a plague, or Lars' life further on again, a singer working shifts in a warehouse as her eggs are frozen and her voice is used by AI bots, let alone Maz, far removed in time, diving for remnants of a past that must be destroyed? Are they connected by the river that runs through their stories, eternal yet constantly changing? or by the mysterious Hummingbird Project and the great question of whether the march of progress can ever be reversed. Propulsive, tender and engrossing, this genre-bending novel is a feast for the heart as well as the mind and senses. This is a novel for fans of David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas, Michelle de Kretz's The Life to Come and Jennifer Egan's The Candy House, and it confirms Kate Mildenhall as one of the most ambitious and dynamic writers in the country. And I honestly couldn't agree more. It really is the most extraordinary novel. So let me tell you about Kate. She's a writer, a teacher, a podcaster. Her debut novel, Skylarking, was named in Reading's Top 10 Fiction Books of 2016, and her best-selling, The Mother Fault, was longlisted for the 2021 General Fiction Book of the Year at the Arbia Awards, and shortlisted for the 2020 Aurealis Awards. Kate teaches creative writing and co-hosts the First Time Podcast, which features conversations with Australian writers. And she's currently undertaking a PhD in creative practice at RMIT University. And of course, her third novel, The Hummingbird Effect, is out now. Enjoy this deep dive with Kate Mildenhall. Kate, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's just, this is just a dream come true for me because I've been listening To you and Catherine talking since the very first episode of the First Time Podcast, I love the way you both talk about writing, so to be able to talk about your actual book is just fantastic. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michelle, and thank you for what you do on your podcast with
0: these deep dives. I love it. Thank you. Kate, this book, you've heard me gush in person (laughs) all over the interwebs. This book blew me away on so many levels, the incredible structure, The characters, the language, and thematically, so many thoughts, so thought-provoking. And I do think it's going to be another of your books, like Skylarking, that will be taught in schools. Are you ready for another lengthy promotional period (laughs) talking about this book? I feel like, you know, what's been such a joy in talking about it so far
1: is that, you know, I put so much in there (laughs) that people have always had really different questions or different areas that they want to talk about. So, you know, up until now, I have not got sick of talking about it yet. So, we'll see how we go.
0: (laughs) That's so good. Let's start with the process that took you from, this is going to be an historical fiction novel, (laughs) through to the magnificently complex and beautifully layered piece of fiction that it became. Can you take us through the process of how The novel rolled out for you from that first kernel of an idea onwards. And this incorporates a question from a listener here. So Kay Grimmer asked the question, where did your idea come from? So I'm incorporating that listener question into this big question about the process.
1: Okay. So to answer Kay's question, where did the idea come from? That's a very easy one Um, because the idea came from a conversation I had at a family birthday party. Uh, with my uncle who, for a time, was the mayor of Footscray, where a lot of the novel is set. And he was telling me about the meatworks, uh, the old Anglis meatworks in Footscray, uh, and a point in time where they lived opposite the the old meatworks. And he was telling me about a point in time after the meatworks had been already decommissioned, um, but there was a fire there. And he explained that there were because there was a hundred years of fat and sawdust in the timber floor, it just went up like an inferno. And that image of of the fire at the meatworks was absolutely where I started. And I came home from that party that night. I was still in um edits for the mother fault. And I opened a new document, and I called it Book Three, and I wrote, you know, Fire at the Meatworks, and extraordinarily, extraordinarily, Michelle. When I go back and look at it, I also wrote down um, Women at the Meatworks, Lil and Peg, and and that's kind of what I wrote down. Um, and from there, I, I I put it aside. But what happens for me is, and I know this happens for a lot of writers, is that. You know, you get to a point in any writing project uh, where you start to feel the energy lag and for the mother fault, you know, that was during the edits and I was like, I I, I just want this book done now and I want to get onto something new. And so, this kind of exciting, sexy new idea about a Meatworks fire book uh, was kind of simmering over there on the side. And so, eventually, I started the research for that. And luckily for me, there was just this enormous wealth of historical records of um, interviews with meat workers just so much that had been kept so that's when I went okay what I'm doing here is I'm writing a historical novel it's going to be very simple in structure it's going to be set over just one year 1933 which because of the research I'd I'd found out that there was this strike the slaughterman went on strike against the chain and I thought oh that's interesting to look at and that looks at progress and and um you know, the, this kind of idea of how things develop in industry. And so that's that's what I'll do. Famous um, last and words, I, and Kate. A
0: straight famous historical last words. word.
1: <laughs> exactly. And I reckon, Michelle, you know, um, people who follow me on Instagram will know that I do uh, a lot of work with Sarah Santilles, the US writer, mm. and I do her word caves um with her. And at one point I remember her saying do you think this is a bigger book? Um, Because I was talking about these big ideas of of progress and and exponential growth and what that means, and I thought about it for a moment. I was like, oh, maybe this is set across a a bigger period of time in Footscray, and honestly, it felt too hard. It just felt too hard, and I was like, no, I've got enough. So I wrote this novel. I wrote the 80,000 words of my straight-up historical novel and I handed it to my agent who was like, yep, yeah, this is great. Let's hand it straight on, um, you know, as, as a draft, but let's hand it straight on to the to the publisher. This was kind of at the beginning of COVID. And my darling publisher got back and said, yeah, you know, it's, it's great. Um, but two things she said, I think you've put everything you care about into this novel and there's too much and the second thing she said was, I really wanted the women of the meatworks to kind of rise up and sabotage the chain and that didn't happen. And I was like, yeah, it didn't happen because that's not what happened in in history. Um, and by the time she got back to me two weeks later and was like, oh, you know, this is how I think you could change the timeline and how we can make it work, I had already kind of thrown it all up into the air and said no this is a a bigger novel so in that sense it was it was feedback that came to me that made me start to explode the novel Um, and I'm so grateful for that I'm so grateful for that and I think one of the things for writers to know is that sometimes that you know I was crushed for those two weeks like I was like What am I going to do? This is terrible. Like my whole dream of what this book is and the timeline for when it should come out is all up in the air now. But in retrospect, that was really an invitation from her to do something else. And, uh, you know, it wasn't what she expected what I did. And I actually went on. She ended up um, leaving the publishing house. So, I ended up being published by another um, publisher and editor. But uh, I'm so grateful that, that that's what happened. Yeah, it was a gift. It was. It was a gift. And, and you know, at the same time and because of COVID too, it was impossible not to look at the links and connections between what was happening in 1933 to meat workers specifically about the change to their work, what was happening during the pandemic to meat workers who were being impacted by COVID in such an extreme way because they had to keep going to work and they were standing cheek by jowl in the formation of the chain. Um, And then the other sections of the novel too, the aged care and lockdown, you know, that's what we were experiencing here in Melbourne. I mean, everywhere, but, you know, very particularly the way that we were in lockdown. So, to begin with, I actually started, I think, writing seven different stories uh, about these kind of impacts and the idea of progress and invisible labor. Uh, And then from there kind of started to work on how on earth I might bring
0: it together. So I love when you said you exploded the novel, not that the novel exploded, you exploded it. Yeah. Was the fact that you were in lockdown, was that almost permission for your brain to go in a million different directions that in normal times you wouldn't have allowed yourself to do?
1: Yes. That's a really interesting question, Michelle. I think that I did, you know, my time was more fragmented. My writing time was much more fragmented than it usually would have been. So, um, we were homeschooling our two kids here. uh, So, I was getting little bits of time and, and and I just did write each of the narratives separately. So, I was just kind of exploring these different ideas. And then I- had an opportunity, there must have been a gap between two lockdowns, and I'd been invited um, to be a resident at Butterfly House in Dramana, which is an RMIT-affiliated residency, and I had a week there. And I went with all of the different bits, starts of bits. Um, I had post-it notes and index cards and all of these different documents. It wasn't even in one document yet. And I started trying to make the links between, but it but it was impossible. So I was kind of just writing it into each of the different narratives. Um and and apologies to people who have heard this story before. I I, I explored it in my um in the PhD that I'm doing, but I, I'm a swimmer when I'm at the beach. So I I went for a swim every morning trying to work out what on earth I, I could do with the book. And there was this older man on the beach who was doing something every morning and I couldn't quite work it out. And on the third morning, I I thought to myself, as I walked back from my swim, I thought, I've got to talk to him. I've got to see what he's doing. And uh, he was, I think in his 80s, he was originally from Ireland. His name was Brian. And he was drawing patterns on the beach. And he said he did it every morning until he was finished. And he said people thought that he was mad, but that's what he did. And, you know, we we got chatting as you do. And he asked me what I was doing there. And I said, oh, you know, I'm trying to write a book. And I said, I've exploded it and I don't know how to put it back together. And he just looked at me and he said, oh, that's simple. And he stepped aside from the pattern he was making onto a clear piece of sand. And with the stick that he he had, he drew a six-pointed star. And as he began, he said, you know, you just start here and you follow it through. <laughs> and it sounded so simple. Uh, but I took pictures and we chatted away. And then when I got back up to the house, kind of still all sandy and in my bathers, I, I drew the, the six-pointed star on a piece of paper and then I just kind of pulled all these index cards and things together. And, you know, it's not what the book ended up looking like, but it was absolutely the first moment when I realised that I could connect each of the stories in different ways that the connections were already there, but I hadn't kind of been aware of them yet. Uh, and from there, the process got much, much easier.
0: Yeah. So it was a jumping off point to the structure yeah. ultimately, which I wanted to talk to you about next because the the structure is incredible. And I should also say there's a beautiful payoff at the end. How did that structure then evolve from the six pointed star and what were those sort of practical steps you took to get it into its final shape? So again, this was this was really
1: odd and very physical for me. And the process has been different for each of my books. Although in in each of them, there's been a time where I physically lay it out on the ground. And I think when I really think about it, I think that um, this is inspired by Anne Lamott in Bird by Bird, um, in the chapter where she gets that terrible feedback from her agent and publisher who says that the the book just isn't working, and she kind of places it all out in this fury to try and work out what the book is and and to put it in a different way. So I do always do that as part of it, um, but it, you know, in in this sense, I had the four different voices uh, at this point. At, for a long time, I actually had five different ones. Um, so I had Lil and Peg in nineteen thirty three, Hilda in twenty twenty, Lara and Cat in twenty thirty one, and Mazanonic's in twenty one eighty one. I also had the river, and I also had the AI section, and I just had them all kind of um, separately written through in each of the stories, and and I knew I needed to interweave them, um, and I had actually uh, got really interested in the work of um, Paul Clay, the the artist, um, and I'd found online his journals of his teaching and his kind of creative process and the diagrams that he would draw. So, just as kind of an exercise to to get me into it, I laid out the different sections of the novel in the form of different diagrams in his book, just as kind of a creative exercise to see what what buzzed together or or what connections that I could I could see and to try and start experimenting with splitting up each of the narratives into you know three or four different parts and what I eventually came to which felt serendipitous and right was um something that resembled like moth wings or the wings of a hummingbird going into future time and back and then back again. And once I had that and I kind of rearranged the Word document because I just work in Word, Um, I don't use Scrivener or anything like that. Um, I've tried, but it doesn't work for me. Um, Once I did that, it started feeling like a whole novel rather than these, you know, five or six kind of disparate pieces. Um, And from there, the work got much easier. Um, and I did things like look at uh, the book Greenwood by Michael Christie, which I'd loved um, maybe three years ago. And I actually interviewed him for the podcast. And what I'd done was I'd I'd marked it with post-it notes. I'd, I'd literally passed the whole novel and worked out because that one is set over four different timelines and, and worked out where he changed into a different section and then how long he spent in that section. And kind of I think as permission for myself to experiment in that in that way one of the things one of the difficulties that I had was that because I'd had the whole 80,000 words of the 1933 novel that needed to be cut down significantly and there was there was still always kind of more of it Um, but looking at Greenwood gave me permission to go okay well that you can have a section that is differently weighted um as long as the other sections work around it. So it was this really kind of physical laying out of the process that eventually got that structure into place.
0: Oh, Kate, that is so fascinating. And I love that you look to other creative professions to assist you with your own creative practice. Well that
1: was that was such a a huge part of it, Michelle. And and because I think often when I when I get stuck or when I can't work out how to do things, in the same way that people, you know, go for a walk or go for a swim or um, I have to get out of the words and the document itself and whatever I can do to kind of shift that around. Um, and that might mean talking to other writers. I don't really share my work in terms of the chapters or sections of writing very much. I did for some key key different sections but in general I don't do that very much anymore but I definitely would talk things out with with writer friends and you know they might recommend a a book or an essay or um, you know a different way of coming at something and I'd go back and try that so just really I, I kind of just used a lot of experimentation for this one.
0: I love a book that makes me work a little bit and makes me do some of the work. And I, that's one of the things I really loved about this book. I, I'm very much into conventional structures, of course, but when someone hands me this sort of a novel, that's such a gift because you're forced to pay more attention to everything, I think, because you're looking for those connections and oh, it's very satisfying when you can see how what the author's tried to do all come together it's a very satisfying book Kate thank you Michelle but it didn't um you know the
1: the kind of the way that it finishes and resolves didn't come until very late in the piece Mm -hmm. and it actually came when I I was very lucky to receive a residency in um in Devonport in Atiroa the Michael King residency which was a a dual kind of um swap with Veruna and I had three weeks there um, last November and it was really there in that total kind of immersion that those final bits clicked into place of of how to resolve each of the stories and one of the things that I did quite late in the piece was um, flip a couple of the last timelines in order so that um it, and and I think it's a point maybe for me when I start to look at my work as the reader will, and you know it's so hard when you know a story yeah, so well you've been so in hard. it for four years to try and to try and um, take yourself into that mindset of thinking about when will this be revealed to the reader and when will the reader experience this feeling, um, and so it was really clicking my head into that mode that allowed me to shift a few things around at the end so that the order in which things. Um, become apparent and the connections become apparent to the reader was what I felt would would be much more satisfying. And um, those those moments, I think, you know, um, when I did the the um, mentorship with Charlotte Wood during the writing of the Mother Fault, she said, and I've heard her say many times, the novel will tell you how it wants to be written. And I think there was a kind of I was so deep in it for that three weeks um, away from the family and all of the things of life that those those gut instincts of going, okay, this is how it should be. This is how the novel wants to be, could really, could really kick in. And in fact, it was kind of like listening to the connections in that part that really helped.
0: Mm. And now that you've mentioned that six-pointed star, I can see that resolution is sort of like that real pinpoint in the middle where it all, all intersects and comes together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Amara McKee, who is one of our listeners sent in a question that goes to structure and you've briefly touched on it, but I just want to clarify her next novel is a dual narrative. So she wants to know how you went about the process of writing those four different point of views, which you have already discussed, but did you write each story independently and then thread them all together? Mm. Um, what you said you did, but can you mm. go a little bit more deeply into how you then threaded them all together?
1: Yes. So, one of the writers who I've been influenced by is uh, David Mitchell. And and often, um, and I don't know if you're the same as someone who interviews writers, I'm much more interested in listening to the interviews about how they are doing things. Yes. And I remember him um, talking about how in Cloud Atlas, he had written all of the sections separately uh, and then he'd wormhole them together. That was the phrase he used. He'd kind of wormhole these connections. And so I think I had a, a confidence that that I would be able to do that because the matter from which I was writing was all all concerned with the same kind of stuff. Women's experiences, invisible labour, progress, the different moments in time which changed the trajectory of our future. So I knew that they were connected. Um, I did definitely write each of the narrative voices separately um but not all the way through so i would jump around and i do again i do that thing that um charlotte wood talks about which is going to where the heat is uh and i've done this since writing the mother fault i think it's a result of like so many writers having limited time. And so, you know, when you get that one hour or whatever it is in the day, rather than going to just the next bit in the chronology for me, um, I go to the next bit that I really want to write. So that might be a, a big emotional scene. It might be an action scene, um, you know, so I go to that first and then I kind of knit them, knit them all together. So I would, I was jumping between the characters um but not necessarily connecting them in in any way and that also allowed i mean i I probably didn't see some of those these things until we began the editing process but some of the um i suppose symbols things like um moths things like eggs and fertility um because I was concerned about those things and they were rolling around in my head and I was reading lots about them, they kind of emerged in each of the characters' voices and stories as well. Um, so, yeah, so that was the process for me that I, I, I went to where the heat was, I wrote the different um, narrative voices and then I, as I put the whole thing together, I started really trying to get down into the nitty-gritty of each of those voices.
0: That three weeks in Aotearoa must have been incredible because yes, as people with other jobs and kids and families and all that sort of stuff, to be able to really immerse yourself in that. And I think I saw some um, pictures on your socials of multiple pieces of paper laid out across the floor and you just can't do that at home. You can't do that at home. And I think,
1: you know, often I say to one of the key things about retreating for me is Waking up thinking about the work and going to sleep thinking about the work and that kind of, um, you know, subliminal work that is being done as things kind of sort themselves out in your brain, even while you're asleep and while you're walking and all of those things when you're not having to organise basketball and organise dinner and (laughs) yeah, all of those things. is, is so important. The other thing that was really key during that Michael King residency was that that was when I was working with Eva Harbridge, who was the visual designer who created the diagram yes. that's in the middle of the, the book. And I had reached out to Eva or found her through multiple connections because I'd I'd always known that I wanted a diagram representing the code or the AI. Uh, in the book, partly because it was so beyond me, (laughs) Michelle, to try and work it out on my own Um, and also because I realised that all of the research I'd done for that and all of the things I was thinking about weren't necessarily going to be as interesting to the reader as they were to me and I wanted to nod to them and I wanted them to be in there as a kind of an invitation or a portal to the reader if they wanted to look into Bayesian probability or whatever those things were um, in more detail but that I did want this different way of it being represented and so when you know you mentioned creative collaboration before or the way of coming at your work in in forms of of different art and the way that Eva and I worked is she didn't read the whole manuscript at the beginning. Um, I sent her a couple of samples and this kind of big document with what I wanted this imaginary algorithm to do and the kinds of ideas and artworks and words and quotes that had inspired me. And then we just had this back and fro, a very, what I understand now to be a very clear visual design process. She came back with three different concepts. She had mind maps and ways in which she'd connected parts of the story together that helped me to see it in different ways as well. And it was so inspiring and it was so influential in terms of that next phase of my editing of the whole book. So, not only that she ended up creating this magnificent Mm. visual that I just cried when I saw, but also that she helped me to see the book in a different way. And I really think now, you know, I want Eva to do a diagram for every book that I do, um, whether or not it ends up in the book or not. Could Eva just do diagrams for everybody's
0: novels? Yeah. Say, look, yeah. I'm having trouble with the structure of this one. Just do a diagram for me. With yeah. It.
1: But I wonder too what it would be like to have someone, you know, compose some music um yeah. for what they thought the the work would be, or, you know, to paint something like it. I think it was I didn't feel any criticism as when they're being edited it, you know, it's a it's lovely and it's a privilege to be edited, but there's always this kind of tension in your chest where you're like, oh, but I like that word or, you know, but that's what I want the character to do or it just seems like a a lot of work. Whereas Eva reflecting it back to me and asking questions, is this what you mean or is that the connection there? Is this what you want? Um, It just helped me to really get to the kind of kernel of what I wanted the book to be
0: about. Yeah, wow. Maybe- Eva could also become an editor because that would be a wonderful way to work with an editor (laughs) as well. One of the most accomplished elements of The Hummingbird Effect is how cleverly you've managed to switch up the voices. So we have the historical section set in 1933, um, the lockdown times of 2020, and we have text messages and a few different devices in there, Um, the near future of 2031 where we're facing crises of fertility and economy, and or the future of 2181, where the language has evolved into something familiar, but different. And then we have these smaller vignettes, as you mentioned, we have the voice of the river, which so Winton-esque. Like, as soon as I read that, I just just dived in and just loved it. I immediately, in, immediately endeared the book to me and the voice of Hummingbird, the AI system. How did you go about developing the voice for each section of the novel? And how did that Out in a practical sense, in terms of writing the dialogue and the inner dialogue and the actions, and you know, it's just it's extraordinary, really. But I can only imagine what your brain must have been like.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Michelle. Well, because I'd done the 1933 section first, and that was really interesting. I knew I wanted to be in close third person when I originally wrote it. um, It was probably half half in Lil's perspective and Peggy's perspective. And then also I had just, um, you know, I'm not much of a a plotter. I am more of a pantser. So as I was writing scenes, I'd often switch into Jack's head as well. Um, And I knew that that was kind of problematic (laughs) in terms of um, conventional stories and how I would go about doing that. And, again, what I did was I would um, go through and kind of pass different books. So uh, Jennifer Egan's Manhattan. Manhattan beach was a real touchstone for me when i was writing 1933 and of course then when i exploded it um the candy house and goon squad also became touchstones because i was like oh look she can do all of this together
0: it's amazing but
1: what i did was i went through manhattan beach and i was like okay um egan is is switching between heads she's head hopping um and she's not necessarily flagging when or how she's doing that and it's not in separate chapters so i'm going to try that so that was my first experience of of kind of trying to get that right and and the kinds of things i suppose you do which is you know is peggy going to use contractions when when we're inside her head and lil not going to or the kinds of words that jack might might use separately uh, even though we're not in first person you know really trying to embody that voice Um, So, I'd kind of played a little bit with that and I did always, even when it was that straight conventional historical fiction novel, I did always have The River was sitting at the start. Um, And I think sometimes people talk about having a a piece of writing and it might not be the start of the book for them. Um, That is the kind of touchstone to which they keep returning. And The River really was that for me. It gave this sense of deep time or it was me trying to trying to talk about the concept of place and the importance of place, but also um, the river as something eternal and serene and having a different perspective on human activity uh, than, than we do. So that was really very grounding for me. Um, and that was always in this very different kind of language uh, that I really liked and is something that I, I play with a lot. It's beautiful. It's lyrical thank you it, it it was a lot of fun to write that um and then 2020 probably that's the next one that was really significant in in terms of the way that i was shaping that i knew that was going to be a fragmented story partly because that's what covid felt like and lockdowns felt like um and i also really wanted to look at the kind of way that we experienced that period of time through the media and through text messages and WhatsApps and and emails because we didn't have that human connection um, necessarily so or in person connection so Hilda's voice is is memories and she's remembering back in time um, and then the WhatsApps are, are between the different family members uh, and then there are some sections they're almost kind of like scripts um between different aged care workers. And, and in that sense, and I I looked too at um Rhett Davis's book, Hovering, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, Australian writer, and how he'd played with with formatting. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do the craziest things that I that I can in this section. Um, and again, that was quite that was quite fun to do. Um, and kind of like that idea of constraints or limitations, like what can you actually express in the limited words and emojis of a WhatsApp message about the WhatsApp message thread about these three characters like mm-hmm. that was a kind of like a puzzle that i had to solve um and then you know for Mazanonics in 2181 that was just a joy the language there and the voices were really part of that world building almost where i started in terms of the way they spoke and again that was questions you know if we're looking at kind of 100 years or 70 years post collapse of society where most of the population has perished um where we're not counting time in the same way like you can't say last week or next month um you know how do all these things influence how the society is being formed and then playing with the language of you know what would the vernacular be like uh if we took out a whole lot of the stuff that we've got going on now or we we pushed it into the into the future. So, that was really fun. And in fact, it was during the editing process and kind of permission from a couple of readers and my editor as well, who said, we can push that language further. So, I went in and, and really played, played with that language too.
0: Yeah, because it really does set it apart. I'd love to do a couple of readings just to illustrate those voices and so listeners can really hear the differences because they are quite remarkable. So, Could you start with a little section from Peggy, Kate, just on page seven? Certainly. It's
1: hot as hell on the Saturday morning. Peggy stops outside the gate of 16 Railway Place, sweat at the back of her knees, prickling in her armpits. She looks around then lifts her right elbow quickly, sniffing to see if she passes muster. From what she's heard about Lil Martin, it won't do to turn up for an interview with a stink about her. She's a worker, Lil, but she's not like the rest of them been at Anglis all her life, just like her dad Kathleen said, and she's in the office, closer to the boss, closer to God. They all laugh together when she says that. That might be so, but beggars can't be choosers. And right now, Peggy is a girl who needs a room and apparently Lil Martin has one.
0: I love that because it's, as you say, it's close third person, but those word choices, it's hot as hell. Um, Passes muster, got to stink about her. You know, it's just that- real language from those times and you're immediately there, I think.
1: I love that you chose that piece too, Michelle, because that was actually something that um, I wrote after the, f- the first part where I'd written all of 1933 uh, when I was really trying to get down into the nitty-gritty of, of who Peggy was and her difference to Lil. Um, and it was actually the physical action of her um, you know, raising her elbow and sniffing under her arm—that was like that key to unlocking who she was and making her, um, you know, a little bit uh, less refined uh, and and all of those things, etc. Apart from Lil, and I think that that was a really important learning moment. In fact, I remember writing that new section, and then I had to go and give a lecture. I think um, to writing students, and I talked about how significant that moment had been as an unlocking of character um, and helping me then to to work out who Peggy really was in that next draft.
0: Yes, you're so right because you've nailed Peg's character straight away, just in one paragraph and like you said before, and I think um, Charlotte Wood said it as well, you know, to have that touchstone that you go back to, even if you're just between writing sessions or you might have gone off on a different section of the novel and you're coming back to Peggy, that's a paragraph you can read and just go, ah, there she is. There's her voice. That's my touchstone. Yeah. Off I go. Yes. So let's contrast that with the voice of Maz, who is our 2181 character.
1: Ears crack. Rush of cold, wet light, down, down, catching the colour and strangeness of odds with her own clever eyes. Deeper, ear crack and ring again until she is finger-scrabbling, gentle, gentle, doesn't do to cloud up the water. And there, a red twist of plastic, a long straight stick that bends in her hand when she clasps it. They have found so many of these. JP says the wanters used them to drink. What a thing, she thinks, and stuffs it in her sack. Another turn before she'll need to surface. There the heavy rust of an old energy keeper she'll need to use both hands to lift. And here a slimy coin. JP sorts those specially. She'll dive here again in this spot till it's clean.
0: Thank you, Kate. Such a beautiful contrast there between 1933 and 2181. And I can see that you've had fun with that, <laughs> the fingers <laughs> yes. scrabbling. And the, one of the things I loved about the 2181 sections is trying to figure out what everything is. So she's found yes. this long plastic thing, clearly a straw. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's coins, but they're odds, these things called odds. What are they? Yes.
1: Yeah, okay. so these are all these, um, you know, remnants of, of the past, all the bits that will be left. And, you know, I used... Um, Alan Wiseman's excellent book, The World Without Us, was a was a touchstone because that book goes into, you know, what will be left when there are no humans and how long will it take bridges to fall or concrete to crack. And and this idea really got stuck in my head. Well, what will still be around? Like it looks like the world's collapsed, but um, there'll still be plastic bags
0: because yeah, <laughs> they don't break down. Everything's underwater. So she and, everything's and her, and her sister, they're all diving for these things. And- yeah. I gather they might be around where an old Ferris wheel maybe used to be? Yes, so that's
1: actually um, around Lake's entrance is is where I mean it's not stated, but that's kind of where I where I set that section. And I did just look at the maps of where it is anticipated that the sea level will be around that area. Um, But yet knowing that there wasn't language for those items, Um, gave me real permission to play into that language. And I I remember during this period I was looking at George Saunders' Substack, which is terrific, and also um, reading A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. And his idea of freakifying language um, was really fun to to play with. And then at a later stage the wonderful uh, Inga Simpson offered to do a read of the manuscript for me. And at the end she said, I reckon you can just give it ten percent more, like make it ten percent more wild. And again, that was a real invitation to go. Okay, this this kind of crazy thing that I've done. Instead of holding back because I'm really aware that it's kind of crazy, I just need to completely release into it and and go all the way with it. You know, completely believe in it, and and so that was fun too. But then when I got to that stage that I did just um, trust that the reader would would come with me yeah. uh, if I knew what I was doing and if if it, I seemed confident on the page uh, that they would come with me and they'd go with me into those spaces as well, which I've made deliberately kind of ambiguous.
0: Yeah, and permission granted by Inga Simpson. I mean, hello, you can't get much better than that, right? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> I love her. The other, look, I found these parts quite moving You might've found them traumatic to relive, but you perfectly captured lockdown in these 2020 sections. There are these, they're almost like one of them, this one that I particularly love, it's like Dan Andrews is setting off in the press conference. Oh yeah.
1: Okay. I've got another Zoom drinks party meeting funeral. Sorry, I can't be there to hold you, to kiss you, to help you, keeping us safe, keeping us apart keeping us from our work, our office, our beachfront holiday home, regrettably lost their lives, their livelihood, live stream, going live, acquired locally under investigation, cluster of concern, restrictions up to as soon as possible, 5pm tonight, midnight tomorrow, in two weeks when numbers go down, when I stand up in front of you and tell you I miss my friends, I miss my mum, dad, partner, sister, brother, auntie, nibbling. When will I see you again? Will I see the ocean? Will I drive on a highway? Will I feel normal? Aeroplanes grounded, get tested. The value of face masks is limited. Opening up skin hunger, vaccine lockdown, increase in domestic violence, child abuse, neglect to keep us safe. That's it for today. Any questions?
0: I had to read and reread those sections, Kate, because they were so evocative of our collective experience and you just uh, nailed
1: it oh thank you michelle they were um well one of the things that i wanted to do was to deliberately make them small yeah um so that a reader who that was really difficult for didn't have to stay in there for very long or could see that this was only a um a small amount of time i think um my darling teacher annie walwitz who's extraordinary poet um poet and who worked at rmit Died during the the writing of this, and um, oh, I've I'm always sorry. loved her prose poetry. Uh, she's an extraordinary poet, and in part, those kind of sections are reminiscent of of some of her work. and And I really just took headlines, phrases that I remember. I remember asking on Twitter, you know, at one stage before it turned into a bin fire, <laughs> um, what are the key words you remember from lockdowns? I asked my girlfriends, I went back through our WhatsApp messages um, from the time and just pulled out some of the phrases we were using and the words we were using and the headlines and then mushed them together. And again, had, you know, tried to kind of have fun um, playing with the connections in the language. Um, And yeah, it's been extraordinary seeing how people respond to those sections in particular. And, you know, in part, publishers were kind of saying, don't write about COVID, like no one wants to go back there. But I think there was an element to that that I wanted to bear witness to this thing we'd just been through, still going through, um, because it feels like unreal. It feels like there was, how was there really a time when we couldn't see our friends and we couldn't go more than five kilometres and we had a curfew? Like it seems so strange now already and we're so close to it um that I felt like that needs to be here in this book if I'm if I'm gonna write about this stuff.
0: Yeah and I don't think you will regret that ever because you yeah. can look back and say I, as you say, I bore witness to that in these yeah. beautiful, very specific I, I found myself seesawing between, oh lockdown drinks, oh domestic Ugh. violence. Yeah. Oh, you know there were some yeah. silver linings there were definitely there some were. silver linings but there were also these like so i'm just reading these sections going oh, the roller coaster of memory yes. here and yeah sure a publisher might say don't write about covid but what you're doing is you're making us feel and whether it's talking about covid or whatever it is those lockdowns we felt a lot yeah, yeah we we really did feel them in those sections you're making the reader feel bravo Kate. actually it makes me feel a bit teary thinking about that michelle
1: thank you i mean yeah we always want to make our readers feel and sometimes i think there's an element of that that can feel very powerful and almost towards the point of manipulation (laughs) um that you know what what you're setting your reader up for and you go there anyway um but i think Particularly in Hilda's story, some of the most extraordinary messages I've got already from readers um, are readers who are health in the healthcare system, and who said, "Like you, you have said it how it was, and it, and it was really really hard." And I think that's the kind of feedback that you know is absolute gold.
0: Yeah, yeah, they were they were heartbreaking. Some of those sections. Hey, talking about George Saunders. He talks about the concept of using description to set mood, and that's something I think you do so beautifully as well. Is that something you consciously do in the first draft or do you sort of go back and layer that in setting and description? That's a really interesting question. I think
1: certainly sometimes I start with setting and place. Um, You know, a lot of the meat works scenes um that I originally wrote in the draft work I was working off um photographs historic photographs and maps and things like that so I would Sarah Santilles does this wonderful exercise that she calls pure description and so for seven minutes you just um write without any figurative language so without simile or metaphor um you just write what you see in an image and so I definitely used that um at some point during the the meatworks and so those often came out of that sensory experience of of um, what it would have been like on the kill floor and places like that. Uh, but then other times I've got a, I keep a journal document. It's the most unwieldy document. It's like 200,000 words and it's just my catch all for each book. So, I put in, you know, how I'm feeling uh, or to-do lists or research links, you know, slabs of text that I've, you know, taken from my research as well. Um, And oftentimes what will happen is that I'll be, you know, reading about a certain aspect of of something and then I'll just start writing down ideas for a scene and then I'll kind of just go into scene. So, that often is dialogue or almost like a a placeholder text of what people might be doing. And at a certain point when I'm doing that, I'll actually – copy and paste that over into the novel document and continue in that scene. So often it will start with dialogue or action between characters. And then I would go back later and, and fit in some of that um, description a- around it as well. So yeah, a couple of different ways that I play with that.
0: Do you start a scene generally with dialogue or action?
1: Yeah. Often if I'm going to where the heat is, yes, mm-hmm. that that's where it will be. And then I'll have to um, push it back out in either direction. Although one of the things that I found um, that, that I think many writers find either in the editing process or as they develop as a writer is that um, those kind of um, linking sections, the membrane, if you will, of how characters move about or get between one scene and the next, often those sections, which are ones that I'm loath to write sometimes because I just want to get into the next action um, you don't really need them in the end. So they are often things that if I'm reluctant to even record them, I put a little mental note in my head that potentially there's another way to cut between two scenes that I don't need that linking stuff as well.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. That's going to be useful to a lot of people, that advice, Kate. Good. <laughs> I all, hope so. <laughs> we all hate those. Like, just get me from A to Z, please don't yes. let me do B, yes. C, D and all the other letters in Yeah, between. exactly. I'd love you to do a little reading here just to show the listeners what I'm talking about here, because there's a paragraph just at the start of the novel where I feel like you capture the setting so succinctly.
1: Okay. Nobody dreams of living at the bottom of railway place, stinking of swamp and sadness. The last cottage was built at the same time as the rest, but you wouldn't know it to look at it. The story goes that shortly after the Hicks family moved in, Mrs Hicks died in childbirth. Poor love, should have stopped at five. And the house began that very day to fall into disrepair. The grass grew high and the weeds grew higher. And despite there being no woman in the house, children still seemed to multiply down there as though the fertile earth of the river was conceiving them and spitting them out half grown and snotty nosed in the cast off pants of their snotty nosed siblings. The despair at the bottom of Railway Place threatened to leech up and infect the rest of the street.
0: Oh God, that's so good. Also, I think listeners will be able to hear a bit of a Cloud Street influence in there.
1: <laughs> the Cloud Street was, you know, I was 16, I think, when I read Cloud Street, and then I studied it um, as a literature text in year 11, and it was so influ- influential, and I think you know, the further I get from it, the more I realize that as a young writer and reader, because I was writing then too, um, that it it's like imprinted on me. Yes. <laughs> and yes. there's something in Winton's style that I found so liberating and gratifying to read. Um, that yeah, that it has imprinted on me. I also think that the um, the way in which, I mean, my family are all big Winton fans and big readers and so sometimes, um, you know, the fickle finger of fate will be referred to in our family. <laughs> and I think that specificity, um, which which so so many writers use, um, of, of getting straight to just a detail that a reader can hang on to um, is so important and it was particularly important when I was writing this book because I was asked the reader to go so many places with me, and to um, you know follow so many characters in all these disparate settings, and you know I didn't want to put in a character list or or anything like that, and I I wanted the reader to be able to kind of hold on to each story and the characters and know them well enough that they that they felt they could follow them, and that they also felt desperately sorry to leave them at the end of each um, section, but thrilled to be in the next section as well, so that there was that real readability factor. And I think that, you know, as many writing teachers will teach you that putting in specifics, um, the names of things, naming them um, is is really, really helpful.
0: I remember doing some writing after reading one of Winton's novels and I thought, God, I'd love to put a peppermint tree in this, but I don't even know what a peppermint tree is. But every time you read about... (laughs) peppermint trees in a Winton novel. They sound so good. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I do sometimes hesitate to compare your writing to any of these novels. We're talking about say Winton, or what have you, but I hasten to add that it is your own writing. Like you are not copying Tim Winton. This is Kate Mildenhall, pure and simple. It's almost like you pluck this inspiration from and, and as you say, some of it's in your DNA, just from your reading. So in saying that, oh, it's so Winton-esque, I don't want you to feel like I'm saying, oh, you've nicked this from Winton. Oh, no. You know what I mean? like Michelle, let just, me tell you, I love it. <laughs> I'm glad you love it because <laughs> I can imagine some writers will go, oh, I'm nothing like that writer. Oh, what is Winton playing? What are you insinuating?
1: Honestly, I think that, you know, what's that amazing, you know, uh, Austin Cleon's amazing book, you know, Steal Like a Writer, like you know, we're thieves. That's, that's what we do. Anyone who's friends with a writer knows that basically anything they say is always up for grabs and that we <laughs> we steal so much from real life. But also from from the writers, and I've done many exercises um, as both a teacher and a, and a creative writing student where, you know, you start with a line from a poem or you start with a, uh, fr- with a line from text and you write on from there and you can feel that imprint. I mean, that's one of the great joys of getting better at your craft is to is to be a reader and to watch what other writers do and you know basically i just had a a pile of of books next to me i call them my touchstone books and i just needed them physically in a pile on the desk next to me so that i could continually be reminded of um the range i think of different books and writers that I wanted to emulate. And again, Charlotte had done a fantastic exercise with me um during the mother fault, where she'd asked me to look at different books and um, you know, why I might want my my work to uh reflect those. So as, you know, as fast paced as Jane Harper or as sexy as someone else. And so in a sense, I you know, I do really value those inspirations and having them sitting next to me so I can look at the expanse of of what I want my work to do. Uh, and I think, you know, for a long time I kind of had this idea of, well, I want it to read like Harper or Leanne Moriarty. Like I want the reader to be able to move through it that quickly um, and to feel that compelled by the characters and the stories. Um, yet I also want it to be kind of as complex Complicated as a, you know, as Anthony Dewar's, um, Cloud Cuckoo Land or as David Mitchell or as Jennifer Egan. So having those, those touchstones for me has always been incredibly helpful and a really big part of my practice too. Yeah.
0: Tony Jordan also, she says to have, you know, one or two books on your desk at all times that you can just dip into and it's for tone. Um, yes. I think Jessica Detman when I was talking to her as well, she said, she can pick up that Barbara Trepito novel, Brother of the More Famous Jack, at any time and open to any page and read any section of that, and she immediately gets the tone of how she wants to write. I love that. There's something too that I've started really reading
1: for Michelle and it's that confidence, the kind of the mastery of the work, and I'm thinking just most recently where I've read that is in – Ann Patchett's uh, beautiful oh, new book, yeah. um, Tom Lake, that you just feel completely at ease as the reader, that you just know that you are in the hands of someone who knows exactly what they're doing with every word. And I think, um, and I wrote about this on on Instagram recently because uh, in a review, in a really wonderful review of the book, Helen Elliott um, mentioned this outrageous confidence that I seem to have in my work. And it's really funny because, you know, I am not a person who uh, has always had <laughs> outrageous confidence in my work. It might look like I do, um, but I remember Charlotte Wood saying, you know, confidence is a discipline and you have to practice it and you have to pretend that you have it. And I think that you can kind of um, imitate or um try on, kind of put it on like you would a costume, this confidence in your writing um, so that your reader feels completely at, at ease. And that's certainly something that I wanted to go for tonally.
0: Yeah, no, I love that. Kate, were there times when you got stuck with the novel and what did you do to unstick yourself? So many times I got stuck, mostly
1: because I, I thought that I'd bitten off more than I can chew, which I know is something that you know, writers often talk about writing themselves into a hole or, um, you know, into a wall. I interviewed Maggie Shipstead who wrote Great Circle yeah. for the first time Pod, while I was in the middle of, of writing all this and she she talked about this idea that at some point she realised that the only way out was through and that she just had to, to keep writing. Um, and so I think I hold that in the back of my head. But on a really practical level, when I get stuck, I go really small and um, Michelle DeCretza talked about this in in the interview I did with her too, like shutting the door and making just work on one sentence, just work on one scene. And the way that I do that mostly is to to set small timed writing times for myself, so like seven minutes, ten minutes, I set the alarm on my phone and I know that if I just write for that long, I can get up and make a cup of tea or go for a walk in the garden Um, and that seems – Uh, a way to kind of break that stranglehold that I might have with myself and the stuckness. Um, And the other, you know, beautiful thing, I mean, really the whole book is an exercise in procrastination because if I was stuck in one section, I could always move to another section. And often that momentum would get me, would get me moving again. Um, And I think the other thing is the beauty of, of being in this writing community is that not only do, do we have, personal networks of writers to talk to, but such a wealth of writing advice to listen to. You know, I would go and read a Paris interview with someone, or I would uh, listen to an interview or a podcast where a writer was stuck or, you know, and just try and get inspiration. And again, steal, practice, experiment with the way that other people were doing things. And I think those things or just reading, just going, okay, I'm taking an hour or an afternoon off to read. And often that in itself could could get me moving again.
0: Yeah. Do you ever put your writing teacher hat on and give yourself a good talking to?
1: Yeah, but so hard, right? Always, always so hard. One of the things that certainly I do with a couple of different writers groups is just that the constant sharing of of exercises, um, you know, things to do, different things to read. I feel like that's extraordinarily generative for me and I do really well off prompts. So often I will go back to prompts that um, I've used before. I do things and this, again, is inspired by Sarah Santilli's um, I subscribe to the Poem A Day website. So there's always one in my inbox. I don't always read it, um, but I know that I can go into that or Newsletters, um, particularly something like Future Crunch, or ones that have you know amazing stories that will just set me set me spinning off uh, into new directions. So, yeah, prompts and and writing exercises certainly just help me get the words going again.
0: Yeah, it just I'd love to ask you about the editing process as well. Um, I know that you've obviously done a massive edit to put this thing together. <laughs> Yeah. Where does the editor come in and how did that roll out? So um, oh, the joy of
1: editing, like I, I would not have said that about my first novel, um, but I absolutely say it now. Um, so first off, I, I had a couple of um, different writers do different reads of different sections. So Alice Bishop um, read Lara and Kat for me particularly, she'd written uh, about egg freezing, and so I particularly wanted to get that section right. And uh, Sam Coley read Hilda's section because he had worked quite high up in aged care during lockdown. So he read that as a kind of a, a check, a fact-checking as well, which was both really useful, and I made a lot of edits then. That was kind of the first external feedback that I got on board. Um, once it got to my publisher, um you know, he did a, a first big kind of read and just, I think we talked on the phone for an hour about different ideas, very big picture stuff. Um, And then what was really useful is that he uh, edited like one section, maybe 10 pages as an example of um what he meant uh, that, you know, in terms of, I think there was something in the Uh, 1933 section of just um, being a little too over the top sometimes in the language and so we edited one section and then I did a whole other pass taking on board the the big structural stuff and using the example of that edit so Um, helpful yeah it was incredible it was a really good you know as an example I don't know if if all editors might do this but for the structural edit it was great to kind of have that well what does that look like you know, cause often it can get lost in translation. Yeah. I don't know, edit, you know, you can go back and forth. So,
0: well, they tell so you what's big... wrong with it, but not actually, yeah. how to fix it. it's like up to you to fix it. So to have yes. that, this is where I'm going yeah. with it. This is an example of how I want you to think, God. That yes. So that was really
1: brilliant. good. Um. And I actually had, I think three days away where I did that full next structural edit. Again, something that I think is really useful is if you can get a chunk of time to work on a a structural edit like that where you can where you can kind of feel like you're holding the whole thing in your head.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so that was great. Then it went again to an external editor and then to another editor within Simon and Schuster. And that's where we started to get, you know, down nitty-gritty into the copy edit. And just so extraordinary. And and what that looked like for me and Lizzie is that she had done um full markup Uh, lots and lots of notes and questions, uh, probably a 10-page letter to me um, with questions, comments, ideas, things that maybe needed pushing further, things that weren't working. We had at least an hour conversation on the phone before she handed that document over to me. So she had kind of let me know what to expect. And then again, a total gift. uh, Another writer asked me to house sit for her, Andrea Rowe, uh, and, again, I had, uh, I think, three days or four days to really get stuck into that edit. Um, and and it was, it, honestly, it was a gift. That was where I worked out. Um, Lizzie asked me if I intended there to be five different male characters named Bill, which I did not at all intend, you know. So just the little things, timeline things, fact-checking of things. Um, this time... I think probably for the first time I did lots of no step, you know, keep that one there, right? That's what I intend. I intend that verb to be a noun or, I, you know, I want it to look that way. Um, So I did probably push back on a little bit more this time. Um, And and then it just continued. The copy edit, the proofread, just such attention to detail uh, and really, I think if you're being edited really well, one of the things you feel towards the end is that the editor knows the text better than you <laughs> and that's certainly how I felt with with Lizzie, that she actually brought things to my attention that I hadn't recognised about the text um, and that we could we could push that, push that further.
0: Yeah, so the beauty of that editor is bringing the external fresh eye to the manuscript but then becoming so intimate with it that you can – Really go into the nitty gritty together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. What a joy. And, you know, like, yeah. And lines back and forth. And just, I think there is something in there too, Michelle, about care and respect. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we were just noticing, I was checking before we started recording which version you had that you, yes. you know, you had an arc so that I could get the um, pages right. Because, for instance, on the first page of the book, there's I don't know, maybe four words changed between the arc and the final copy and we just, you know, that was hours of conversation, (laughs) literally hours of conversation just to make sure that those things were really right. And I think the other joy of having an editor on is that, like I talked about, where your energy starts to flag at the end of the process and you're both at a point, or for me, it's like... um, no, no, I need to keep making changes and moving commas around, but also I never want to see this text again. <laughs> uh, and that the editor is is such a plays such a key role in keeping the energy up for you as well, and to to say, you know, we're nearly there. This is the last time, you know, just these few things. Um, and that that that's key as well to to getting you across the line at the end.
0: Yeah, I did want to ask you how intensely you work at sentence level. So maybe that could be a good example. Just comparing those those four words or whatever they were, and you could just yeah. tell us why you made that decision, or you and your editor made that decision. Okay, so the
1: changes in the very first paragraph of the book. So in the um, in the arc. The second sentence was originally snouting forward in the murky dark, a bundle of rags attracting the bottom dwellers glide on past before it reveals its innards. And the thing that has changed in the final is that it's not a separate sentence and it says, and here, snouting forward in the murky dark, what's this, a bundle of rags attracting the bottom dwellers? And there's a full stop. And then it says glide on past before it reveals its innards. And to give you an example of where this came from, at different points, the river voice was actually the voice of a singular, very old fish. And then, you know, over time, I kind of massaged that into just this this old river voice. Um, So Lizzie and I worked for quite some time on whether um, we needed to be more specific about this bundle of rags that was at the bottom of the river and what the perspective of the river was and how it was seeing that. Uh, and so that's where those, those changes came in. And so, you know, it is very much about punctuation where the full stop goes. Um, you know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of sentence level work that I was doing with an editor. Um, at other times in my own sentence work, it's often about reading aloud. Um, I don't do, I know that there's so many um, writers. Tony Jordan is one that I think of always immediately. I think Anita Heist does the same thing of reading the work that they've done the day before, perfecting that and moving on. I think Lucy Trelaw does it as well. I am not that writer. Like I go from one big mess, <laughs> get to the end of it and then go again from the start. Um, and so the perfecting of sentences is um, – you know, it takes a long time, and I definitely try and do that idea that that Saunders talks about of um, in "Swimming the Pond in the Rain" of uh, intuitive iteration. So just, you know, moving that one word and making it slightly bit better, and and moving the ship, you know, the needle incrementally, yeah, and the needle as well, around and around as you go over it and over it and over it and get those sentences exactly right. And I think you can feel like almost like you've got a prickle in your sock. You can feel sometimes when a word or a phrase just doesn't, doesn't quite fit um, and I think it's when you feel like you've got as many of those prickles out as you possibly can that you kind of have to go, okay, now this is the thing that I'm, you know, I'm willing to put out into the world
0: you read out loud as well when you're to
1: get the yeah.
0: rhythm of the yeah. sentence?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely definitely I read out loud. Um, and particularly because some of those sections the covid sections, the river section um often when I'm doing sex scenes that they are um unpunctuated and very much about very much about rhythm. Um so I do I do definitely read those aloud to try and work out if I've got all that in the right spot because it's a risk taking out all the punctuation, of course, um, and you need to know that that is working in terms of the the word
0: placement. Kate, thank you so much for today and for diving in so deeply with us on your process. You talked before about the mastery of the work. You're there. This is a masterful piece of work and I take my hat off to you. Wonderful.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. And thank you for your probing questions on process. It's just, it's so much fun to talk about this stuff for me. (laughs) So thank you so much.
0: It's a pleasure. You've sent us down so many rabbit holes. I feel like the show notes are going to be essay length because
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) All those. I know the feeling of doing essay length uh, show notes. So
0: it'll be great though, because you've pointed us in the direction of so many different novels that inspired you, other authors' works that have inspired you also i know when i listen to a first time podcast episode i do often dive into the show notes and go oh click 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 and i'm going off on all these different tangents so i love that though yeah so do i hey best of luck on the rest of your tour and i look forward to catching up with you again soon thank you so much michelle there you go, the wonderful Kate Milden Hall. Remember, you can go down all those rabbit holes, the books and the references Kate mentioned over on Simon & Schuster website. And I've popped links to everything else she mentions in the show notes, which you can access right here in your podcast app or over on writersbookclubpodcast.com. Not to mention, I highly recommend you grab a copy of The Hummingbird Effect wherever you get your books. And if you liked this deep dive with Kate, she did two deep dives into quite different aspects of the novel with her co-host Catherine Collette over on The First Time Podcast, including a few spoilers. So go and head over there if you want even more of The Hummingbird Effect. Right, on to my next guest, another incredible Aussie author whose career has taken off big time in the US. Very excited to be welcoming Sally Hepworth onto the show. Sally's new novel, Darling Girls, has just come out and already rocketing up the charts. It's another thrilling page-turner, or as Sally calls them, family dysfunction with a dash of murder. I devoured the whole novel in a weekend. It's so good. If any of you follow Sally on Instagram, you'll remember she did a series called Writerly Wednesday, where she answered questions from writers and talked about all different aspects of her writing. She had so much good stuff to say, so I'm very much looking forward to asking her to share some of those things in relation to Darling girls. Let me tell you about the novel. For as long as they can remember, Jessica, Nora and Alicia have been told how lucky they are. Rescued from family tragedies and raised by a loving foster mother on an idyllic farming estate, they were given an elusive second chance of a happy family life. But their childhood wasn't the fairy tale everyone thinks it was, and when a body is discovered under the home they grew up in, the Foster sisters find themselves thrust into the spotlight as key witnesses, or are they prime suspects? This is a thrilling page turner by New York Times bestselling author Sally Hepworth of Sisterhood, Secrets, Love and Murder. Now, this book is broken up into around 70 chapters with four different points of view. So I'm really keen to talk to Sally about that structure, you know, why she chose it, what purpose it serves and how she wrangled the whole thing. You might have a question for Sally, too. If you do, you'll need to get it in pretty fast this month because of Sally's massive tour schedule. We're recording the podcast this Wednesday, the 4th of October, even though the episode won't come out until the 1st of November. So if you do have a writing question for Sally, send that in to me by Tuesday, the 3rd of October by about 5pm at the latest, and I'll add it onto my list. You can either send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook or there is also a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in with your question. As always, I'm giving away a copy of the novel with thanks to Pan Macmillan. Entries are now open, so head over to Instagram or Facebook to enter. All you have to do is follow the podcast on socials and tag a friend. You'll find us at writersbookclubpod on Instagram and writersbookclubpodcast on Facebook pretty easy to find. And while you're in the app looking at all those fabulous show notes, if you fancy leaving a review or a rating, that would also be amazing because it helps other writers just like you to find these episodes. Thank you so much for listening this month again. It's delightful to have you with me on this journey as we chat to authors As always, I'm recording on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I look forward to catching you next month. Until then, happy writing!